Hey everyone, it's Maurice. If you've been listening to the show and you like what you hear, you can become a patron of Revision Path today. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and you can join at the $5 level to get behind the scenes exclusive access on upcoming interviews, new articles, and episodes of our special patrons only podcast. Join at the new $20 level and you'll get everything at the $5 level plus a free Revision Path logo enamel pin plus a swag pack full of goodies. So check it out today, patreon.com forward slash revision path. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked Matthew Schoenholtz what's his biggest challenge with designing for Facebook, and here's what he said. I think the, also a lack of like top-down strategy uh, can present challenges for some designers and some teams. Each team is responsible to define the strategy within how their group sort of ladders up to the overall mission. And so a lot of people come in and they expect, you know, to be handed down like a strategy from the top. I think that's one one aspect of that, that presents challenge, um, challenge for design. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to hire someone for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, College Vine in Cambridge, Massachusetts is looking for a senior product designer. And Glitch is looking for the following positions for their New York City office. An office administrator, a social media specialist, and a VP of people. If you're looking to diversify your design or dev teams, post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you through our podcast and our weekly job alerts. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is a friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting-edge VR experiences, smart bots, useful tools to solve problems at work, apps that help advance important causes, I mean, you name it. People have built over a million projects on Glitch for you to discover, and new ones are popping up every single day. Get started on making something awesome at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. 
Now MailChimp may have just started out doing email, I mean it's, it's in their name, but now you can use it for Facebook ads, you can use it for Instagram ads, they have really powerful automations, and a whole lot more. So think of MailChimp more like a marketing powerhouse. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking with Chief Creative Officer and Creative Director Jason Murphy in Portland, Oregon. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Good day, everyone. I am Jason Murphy, and uh, I am a creative director, former design director for Nike, and also a former designer for Black Entertainment Television, Service Employees International Union, and Discovery Channel. Wow. Those are some pretty big names. Yeah. (laughs) I've been working for a little bit, man. (laughs) So I definitely want to talk about Nike, because... I know that makes up a, a kind of big recent part of your story, but let's start with where you are now. Like, walk me through a typical day of what it's like for you. Oh, man. Typical day for me is uh, starting at 5 a.m. That's with me trying to crawl myself out of bed to get to the gym, and uh, as well as drag my wife <laughs> along with me. That's a good start for our day. And then we typically come back, get my, my youngest one dressed and out of the door for school, and then... If I don't have some current freelance work that I'm working on, I usually hit my design shop, which is in the garage currently. I've invested in a number of things. Like I have a, a laser engraver that I'm using to do sort of upcycled products with. I don't want to call it antiquing, but my daughter and I call it thrifting. So I'll go and find you know, these really amazing objects, and then I'll reimagine them with uh, African-inspired art on the laser engraver. And so I've been doing uh, women's bags. I've been doing housewares. I'm doing some uh, vintage apparel, like men's apparel currently. And then uh, I'm still doing some speaking gigs um, at some universities. I've been getting a couple of invitations for that, as well as just the day-to-day consulting. That's it in a nutshell. Nice. Yeah. And I'm just speaking about speaking. When I first heard of you, I was actually from the AIGA design conference last year. Yeah, I had a blast, man. That was a that was an incredible time. You know, Minneapolis was really fun. It was it was really cool. Was that your first time going? Yes, I hadn't had a relationship with AIGA in a number of years, and Diane Holton actually reached out to me to uh, speak on that particular topic of the impact of diversity and inclusion, and I was like, sure. <laughs> I was like, it'd be it'd be a great thing to speak about. I think at the time I was still working at Nike, and um. Uh, we were coming off of the hinges of the uh, equality campaign. That campaign was like really successful, but I think that there were a lot of folks who initiated, you know, the ongoing conversations around that campaign that wanted to say more. And so, I think part of what I wanted to do in that talk was just to say a little bit more. Yeah, I noticed when I watched the video back that you were mentioning that there were some parts that you didn't get a chance to really get into. Yeah. I want to give a couple of shout outs to, to one man in particular, who is Jabari Hearn. I think he, he, uh, he now works at uh, Google Labs. And there were a lot of other you know, instrumental folks that were involved in that campaign, from uh, brand comms to brand marketing to retail. But I credit Jabari for really spearheading the initial thoughts around how we wanted to approach the messaging of that campaign that particular time when Donald Trump was running for president, right? It was, we had, you know, we had a lot going on with the country. We had a lot of, 
you know, African-American males being killed for little or no reason by the police. And so I think, you know, what we wanted to do was take a stronger stance in terms of the tone in which we wanted to speak. But at the end of the day, you know, we're also responsible for, you know, a business. I think the campaign was great. I think it served more of the business needs than it did the actual circumstances that African-Americans were dealing with in the United States. That actually goes into a question that came from our audience from uh, from Chanel. She wanted to know what was your creative process like with leading Nike's equality campaign kind of during such a rancorous time? I mean, like you mentioned, it was right when Trump got elected and now you've got undoubtedly the biggest sportswear brand in the world coming out with this equality message. What was your process like during that time? It was pretty fluid. And I think, again, where we initially started was like really deep and focused around wanting to solve a particular problem, dealing with the violence against young black men, as well as, you know, young black women out here when it came to police brutality. And that notion of, you know, being seen, right, as equals from the jump, you know, and not having to always uh, prove ourselves. I think the creative process involved a lot of people. I wasn't, you know, the only one by no means. There was a like a small team of um, around four or five individuals who really started the process and the conversations, started sort of building the marketing plans and the marketing decks. And then my responsibility was more for like creating the visual language and the vision that we would then present back to senior leadership around how what we wanted the brand to stand for in the marketplace. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking also with kind of, I don't know if this is a continuation of the campaign, but this year, Nike put out an ad that featured Colin Kaepernick, like front and center. And that caused a lot of controversy in terms of, well, I guess in terms of customers, you know, there were people cutting the Nike logo out of their socks and they were yeah. burning their shoes, but yet Nike stock price went up and up and up. So maybe it it was just kind of a publicity stunt. I don't know. What 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 are your thoughts around all of that? I feel like you got something to say about that. My immediate thoughts around that were, you know, oh, okay, it's about time, right? But then the secondary and tertiary thoughts were more, you know, this does nothing for what Colin Kaepernick sacrificed in those first two years, right? And so it's great for you to come to his rescue now and Make it seem like, you know, you guys are in total support, you know, of what Kaepernick is doing and what he was standing for. But I guess me as a person who had sat internally on a lot of those conversations, I just felt like what they did at that time was only in their best interest because mm-hmm. they had nothing to lose versus basically Colin sacrificing his entire career to make a stand for something. And I, and what I actually felt like also was that if they had did it in the beginning, the same thing would have happened. Yeah. <laughs> Stock price would have shot up. People would have been mad, but they still would have shot. The stock price would have shot back up to probably where it is now. And even at that time when we were working on the original campaign, right, like our sort of business had taken a dip in North America. Like sales were maybe a little bit lag. Growth was a little bit stagnant. And I think the group's thoughts were, if you stand with African-Americans, we're going to support you, right, irregardless. And I think that there was just some uh, apprehension around how the brand wanted to communicate and how they wanted to show their support for the African-American community and, and those at large, right? LGBTQ and, and everyone else. And I just think, let's just say for campaign number one, my biggest issue was when have African-Americans ever had equality in this country? Mm. 
Right. So then, you know, <laughs> so then what are we talking about here? Talking yeah. about equality. Like, are y'all giving us equality? Like, no. So then what, you know, what are we talking about here? Right. And again, like I, it was a great campaign. I got on the train. I got on board to execute and to make it a, as great a campaign as possible. But I just felt like there was a lot of emotion that was lost, you know, mm-hmm. especially at the time when you had Philando Castile, you had the shooting in Dallas, you had the shooting in the, the couple of shootings in Louisiana. And it was just to, for me, it was it was visceral because I'm I'm 40 something year old black male and I have to deal with this kind of environment every day. And so what you want is for people to understand what your life, have a glimpse into what your life is like on a daily basis, you know? And I felt like this was a, I almost felt like it was this All Lives Matter campaign. And I was just like, nah, that is not what's going on for black people. Do you think Nike should have said anything at all? I think it's fine that they finally did say something. I just, you know, hey, don't look to me for any hand claps. (laughs) No, don't look to me to support you and tell you that you did a good job. You know what I mean? Think about this, and I could be wrong about the number, but whatever million or couple of million of dollars that you gave to Colin Kaepernick's foundation and organization, that company is a, let's just say, close to a $47 billion company. Yeah. So that is like a small grain of sand that you've given this this man in support of like him literally sacrificing, you know, what could have been at least a 10-year football career <laughs> or at least a five-year football career, right? And so yeah, it's, that's true. it's a drop of a hat. And so when, when I see my own people then jump on the bandwagon around, oh, I'm going to go buy more. I'm like, no, like that is not what we should be doing. And I think the other thing that struck with me at the time of the equality campaign, again, was there was a young brother in D.C. who had lost his life during the holidays over a pair of Jordans. And I think that now I think th- there were like a multitude of things that were happening, like in, you know, the sort of diaspora minds landscape and it to me it involved kids dying over things that they didn't need to die over and so i just kept asking myself why are we still focusing on selling shoes when you know these kids are out here killing each other for shoes you know and we're not talking about that yeah no that's true i was actually trying to find if or i was trying to find what the dollar amount was that they because i remember that ad campaign did come with that stipulation but i don't mm-hmm. remember how much it was but like you said this is a a multi-billion dollar company, you know, the the amount of equity that they're giving up in terms of donating to his, his foundation is minuscule in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. On a yearly basis is minuscule. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely. Know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that's my thing. I, I didn't appreciate it. I didn't like it. I don't mm. support, I support Kaepernick. I support his views. I, su- I support his stance, but I don't support people jumping on the bandwagon now when you should have been out front leading the charge in support of this man from the beginning, you know? Yeah. I hate to sound morbid, but I mean, it almost reminds me of how so many people were behind Ali after he died. You oh, know? yeah. Like, like the number of brands that have, had latched no, on to his image and who he was when during the 60s, during that time, he was a social pariah for what he did. Yeah. Nobody wanted to touch him. Mm. And the community was the only, were the only people that stood behind him. <laughs> exactly, right. Now, I think that's the larger thing I'm trying to get. But what I would love for our people to, to really realize is that think about the power that you actually do have in terms of the money that we spend as a nation every year on some of these brands who really just don't they don't care yeah. you know, about yeah. what's going on with you and your community. You know, so then 
you have the power to like, and you have the technology and you have the space to now go and create your own, which is what I love right now about what I'm seeing on Instagram is all these sort of niche uh, athleisure brands that are just launching out of these most obscure spaces, you know, and actually slowly taking little bits of market share from some of these larger brands and, and they're actually coming out with better product. They're like, they're more nimble and they're, and they're a lot more purpose driven. And what I want our people to actually see is that you can do this now. There's nothing mm-hmm. stopping you. And the thing, the one thing I will credit Nike for is giving me 13 years of college and getting paid to go to school. Cause that, that is a fantastic school. If you get accepted into that school, you know, and you get trained very well, you get trained in terms of like creative thinking. You get trained in terms of storytelling, uh, how to talk through your work, how to sell <laughs> your work. It's the ultimate confidence booster in terms of that gradual college journey that you might take from freshman and senior year. But the difference is they throw you into the junior and senior classes as soon as you get there. <laughs> <laughs> so before, you know, before working at Nike, I had worked at a number of places. I worked at Discovery Channel. Black Entertainment Television. I had done some television work for like National Geographic. So I thought I was the man. I thought I knew stuff. And when I got hired to work for them in 2005, I got thrown in the deep end of the pool. And, you know, it's, it could be very scary, but, you know, you have people to help guide you along the way, right? They don't just like throw you in the pool and tell you sink or swim. There is a life preserver about six feet away from you that you actually will have to swim to if you get into trouble. But they give you enough rope to really learn, you know what I mean, and and sometimes make mistakes. That was the sort of early on period of when I worked at the company. I got hired by a guy I want to bring up. This guy is a design legend. You should you should definitely maybe reach out to him and talk to him. His name is Ray Butts. Okay, I've heard I met, of Ray. That name yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, I met my boss, who became my boss in 2000, in the year 2000, at a Black Designers Conference in Los Angeles. The Organization of Black Designers <laughs> Conference in L.A. Oh, wow. Yeah. I gave him my stuff at the time. You know, I had, I think I had like portfolios on floppy disks. This is how old this was. <laughs> <laughs> or even CDs. I think I might have had portfolio on CDs. Like an installable portfolio on a mm-hmm. CD. You know, at that time, people were like, man, you should move to L.A. You know, you, lo- you do all this television work. And I was like, nah, man, I'm not moving to L.A., man. I got earthquakes out here. And then <laughs> then two years later, I was driving across country to move to L.A. So, you know, I met him in 2000. It took him five years before I could actually, you know, get a few interviews and get offered a position in the company. But it was a roller coaster ride from day one to to the end of it. I want to talk about OBD here on the show. We've talked about the organization of black designers probably since we started doing the show back in 2013. We even did this year, we did like an oral history piece on the history of the organization from when it started to kind of where it is right now. And it's always interesting to hear from designers who went to those OBD conferences that they had back in the day about how influential they were in terms of just meeting other people and having that fellowship. Can you talk about what it was like during that time when you found out about OBD? It was heavy. I found out about OBD in like, I want to say 92, 93. And I met, I have another mentor named Lorenzo Wilkins, who sort of introduced me to everybody else in the organization. Lorenzo, he's been on the show. 
Yeah. And so I met David Rice in the early 90s, Shauna Stallworth, Lorenzo, Rodney Williams. I guess they had been doing the organization for a while, but I, my introduction to it was the Philadelphia Conference. I still can't remember what year that was, but I know a lot of people spoke. There were people from Reebok. I think E. Scott Morris was there to speak from Reebok. I think Ray Butts might have been at that one, but I didn't get to meet him at that time. One of my best friends, like all time, like friends right now in the world, is guy Kelsey Newman, who lives in L.A. now. We met there, you know, and, and stayed in contact. I just wanted to be a part of the organization. I think it gave me a lot of opportunity to sort of cut my teeth and work with like-minded individuals, right, who were really passionate about changing the dynamics of how we were seen in the design community. I think we were fighting even harder then to get into certain design rooms, right, or design conversations back then. And I just felt like he, he gave everyone a platform to really like come together and express who they were, share their work, and network. I made a lot of lifelong friends out of that organization, man. No, I mean, first of all, that's great to hear. Like I said, there have been many people who have talked about OBD and they speak very fondly of it now. And I just kind of wish it was still it. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of wish it still had that that kind of feeling. I know that I've I've reached out several times. People on my team have reached out several times just to kind of like see like what can we do to help for this current generation of designers? Because yeah. I think what's you know totally different from now and then is how much technology has kind of taken over design in terms yep. of tools and and even like the location of where we're at, like where we're sort of congregating or segregating, if you want to look at it that way. And it would be good to see the organization kind of try to put its spot on the 21st century, but it's been... uh it's been a challenge. I still believe in OBD. I want nothing but the best for them, but it's not what it used to be from what I've heard from all accounts. Yeah, and I, and I would not disagree with you. I think what comes to mind for me is that like, I'm from a different generation, right? And the people who started that organization are from a much older generation, right? And ideas and ways of thinking and doing things transform generationally, right? Yeah. I would also love to see that organization exist for the next 100 years, you know, but what I will say is that people in the organization have to get out of everybody else's way. Mm. <laughs> and so there's lots we could discuss about that organization. <laughs> I don't know, you know, and here's the thing, like David Rice is one of my biggest and most important mentors. And I love the man, like, you know, the man really looked out for me when I was a young, crazy, brash unapologetic designer. And he gave me opportunities where a lot maybe didn't exist, you know? And I also know that that organization was a great organization at one point in time in the mid nineties. But I think a lot of internal strife and disagreements maybe caused some of the state that it's in now. And again, it's, I just wish people could come together versus focusing on the past and whatever the differences were like come back together and understand where we are right now and look towards that younger generation of people like yourself and then give them the reins to like bring the organization back to where it should be. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Certainly, you know, we've tried over the years to do something with them. I don't know what that something would look like, but I know that they were having conferences. I think they're still having conferences. It's just hard to discern from the outside what the organization is doing because like the website's not up to date. The social media is kind of all over the place. It's a bit frenetic. So it's hard to kind of determine like 
Yeah. Are there meetings where people are meeting? Like, I'll see something come up every now and then about like an OBD sponsored event or something. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what is this? I don't know. It just seems to be a bit disjointed. And uh, yeah, I agree in terms of the the internal strife thing that you mentioned. That's something we certainly uncovered through our oral history is that they're just too many cooks spoil the broth, as the saying goes. So it takes trust. You know what I mean? And yeah. so that's the thing that has to be worked on. Right. And there's all kinds of levels to that to trust. And I think that, you know, there are people still with some really good intentions trying to you know, keep moving that organization forward. I can't speak for everyone else, but I do know that it's very hard to try to run a national organization by yourself. <laughs> and again, even, you know, when I was in my earlier years, like mid 20s and, and like late 20s, you know, we realized a lot of the same things is that if the older generations can't see the vision for what, you know, the younger generation can bring, to the organization, then yeah, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be disillusion, and then there's the potential for disintegration and failure. Yeah. I don't credit that, I don't push that responsibility onto just David as the founder of the organization. You know, I place that on everyone who had a chapter in whatever state they may have been, you know, that didn't always find, you know, a way for everyone to work together versus focusing on differences, differences, differences of opinion or what have you, you know, mm-hmm. I try to stay away from the problems that that organization may have had. It was a great organization and it still can be. I think there's a lot of young designers now that are amazing, that are doing some incredible work that if we were to reformulate that organization in a way that where we could focus on that and highlight those individuals, it could be stronger than ever. I agree. <laughs> I totally yeah. agree with that. It has to be reimagined from the inside out. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, totally, totally from an organizational standpoint, how it's ran, who the founders are, like how the chairman of the board are, whatever. It just has to be reimagined. So a couple more things about, I know that we were talking a lot about OBD and how that set you up for Nike. So I do have kind of just a few more questions about Nike. I'm really kind of curious with you being one of just like half a dozen design directors that were overseeing the brand of Nike? Like, what was that experience like for you? I think in the beginning stages, um, it was awesome. I think, again, if I'm speaking from like the entire journey of my career, like I worked really hard. I learned a lot. It was a matrix-based organization in which, you know, it was hard to maybe navigate who your boss might've been at one particular time or another who key stakeholders might have been. You had to listen very intently to start to understand, like, you know, what parts of the business or or the company that you were working with or working for. It was an incredible, like, ride. I will say that. And I learned a ton. What I will say for at least black men, I mean, there weren't a lot of design directors and creative directors of African-American descent. I think they may disagree with me in terms of what I'm saying, because right now the, the current VP... I think is an African-American. There's several, you know, VPs of design mm-hmm. in the organization that are African-American. But that goes to question, <laughs> you know, what that actually means also when I say African-American. Mm-hmm. In terms of that second tier of design director, I think I might have been the only one who was a design director. Now there's probably a few more that are design directors, but it's still you know, in comparison to the rest of the organization, like hard to find us. 
Hmm. So what were some of the challenges that you faced? I mean, aside from just being one of a few black men at that level, what other yeah. challenges did you face? Some of my challenges were just more on people's perceptions of you versus who you authentically are. Differences in terms of how people communicate, especially when you're dealing with people who have like grown up in the Pacific Northwest versus growing up in a hustle and bustle kind of a city like either New York or Philly or anywhere else, Atlanta, you know, anywhere on the East Coast, right? There's just a different way that individuals move and yeah. communicate yeah. and handle problems, right? Yeah. I think the thing that I did experience a lot of in Portland in particular was just like passive aggressive behavior or sort of like microaggressive like bias. Mm -hmm. That stuff began to take a toll after a while because, you know, what it would do is make you start to question yourself in terms of like who you are and like, you know, you're, you're constantly in this mode of trying to work on who you are as a leader, who you are as an individual and, and sort of like what the perception of you is in the organization. Sometimes I started to feel like some of that stuff could be like over focused on versus like what you actually bring to the table, what you actually deliver. You know, I was always known for delivering amazing creative. What I think sometimes I would also be known for was, or at least the perception was that I could be challenging to work with. And what that means is I ask a lot of questions. Uh -huh. you know? <laughs> well, I ask why sometimes. Yeah. Just doing what you're told. Yeah. You know, that's the way I kind of looked at it. I, I've and, gotten that similar criticism too. Like sometimes I will keep asking a question until I get the answer that I'm looking for. And yeah. Like if I can tell that the person is either not responding or they're talking around the answer, I'll just keep asking it Yeah. until I get the answer I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, I think the difference, part of the difference <laughs> is I'm probably a lot more blunt. Okay. <laughs> and, that, and again, that's just the world that I had come from working in the design world between New York and D.C. Everything was on the table. And you took feedback and you, you made your adjustments and you took the criticisms and, and then you left it there. You didn't like take it with you later to like <laughs> to attack someone later down the line or get mm -hmm. retribution. That's what I kind of started to see a lot of uh, working at this place. <laughs> what was it like at BET? Man. I mean, you were there like in its heyday. Yes. I, look, I, I, I may regret saying this, but it was like boomerang. Oh, shit. Okay. No, 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 no. Please continue. Continue. <laughs> it literally was like boomerang. It was it was probably one of the best environments I ever, I ever had worked in. And you felt good about going to work every single day, even though we weren't getting paid a lot. Like, like when Bob owned it, Again, we weren't getting paid a lot. And that was, a, you know, at a very early stage of my career where I looked at a lot of job decisions and choices around what was I actually going to learn from this place and what kind of skills would I be able to take away with me? It was a great learning ground. And it was like it was tremendous to work, you know, with an entire building of, you know, African-American people every single day you come to work from the people who clean up to the people who are at the highest level of executive leadership. That was an amazing feeling every day. And you take it for granted. I mean, I honestly will tell you there were points in my career there where I actually took it for granted, you know, because I never thought that he would sell it back to Viacom or, yeah. you know, and it's definitely not the BET, you know, that, that I worked at and grew up on. <laughs> but it was an amazing place, man. A lot of energy, 
a lot of people coming and going and some great history, man, came out of that organization. Did you hear that BET is uh, going to do like a, I guess it's a sequel, like a, a sequel to Boomerang? Did you hear about this? No, I did not. Oh, boy. So <laughs> BET is planning on doing, I guess you could call it not a reboot because it's a movie, but like they're doing a sequel to Boomerang set in the future with the kids of Jacqueline and Marcus and Angela. And I am cringing to see how it's going to be. I mean, I the team behind it is like, it's Lena Waithe is executive <laughs> producing. I think Halle Berry is signed on. They're doing a lot of it here in Atlanta. I am cringing because I don't trust BT to do that movie justice or even the themes of what the movie talked about. I don't yeah. trust them to get it right. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm going to plead the fifth. Okay. <laughs> okay. I want, I mean, don't get me wrong. I want, I want it to be something great. But then like when I saw the, the, like, the stars that are signed on, like the kid is like a guy who's supposed to be Jacqueline's son. And there's a woman who is Marcus and Angela's daughter. And I'm just like, I don't know, man. I don't know how this is going to like. I mean, you, you got to give the young people the chance, man. You got And you got to give the new and upcoming actors and actresses an opportunity. And, and I'm, l- let's just say this. BET made some really great movies when I worked there. And Al Freeman, <laughs> as crazy as this sounds, who played Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X taught at Howard University. He even starred in a couple of movies that I think that BET made in the mid nineties. I think they can do it. Whether it's, I think if the story is right, I think everything else will fall into place. Yeah. I want the story to be right. I wanted to give proper homage to like, cause there were so many people. I mean, I'm thinking of myself, but also just a lot of people who we've had on the show that were so inspired by yeah. that movie, like not just seeing black people dressed up in a professional setting, but like black creative people doing creative work. Yeah. You know, it's not something that really I think we've seen that much of since then. So, no, I mean, it influenced yeah. me like him, him being an advertising executive definitely influenced some of my own creative decisions when I was in college. It definitely was a major influence. Yeah. So if she signed on, at least I feel like there's the possibility <laughs> that they'll do it right if they can land eddie to get back involved somehow i'd feel a lot more comfortable i don't know what it's gonna take to get eddie back into acting i don't know yeah. i think he he has his white girlfriend and he is fine <laughs> i don't know i don't know like i don't know if you remember there was like a roast a few years ago it was like dave Chappelle and some other people and, and i don't think eddie laughed at a single joke he kind of just sat there like i could be at home chilling Right, right. I don't know what it's going to take for Eddie to get back in the game, but I don't know, man. Well, well, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood. We'll see what happens. Right. I mean, he does. The dude doesn't have to work, man. He probably never has to work a day in his life again. Out of all the movies this man has made, that short span of probably twenty years, he he never he probably never has to work again, dude. I mean, I wonder which movie he gets the most from. I feel like it's Mulan. Nah, I feel like it's probably the Clumps. You think so? (laughs) Because of all the sequels and stuff. And all the characters he played. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking Mulan because of Disney, and they just, I don't know. But who knows? I mean, you're right. But hopefully, I just wanted to to have the spiritual succession of the original in this, because I would hate to watch it and just be like, oh, this is trash. Like, I don't want, I don't want to watch the new Let's, Boomerang and feel that well, way. 
let's be positive about what's to come. And then let's be pleasantly surprised. All right. All right. We'll do that. <laughs> let's prepare, but be pleasantly surprised. Gotcha. You know? Gotcha. Yeah. So when you went to school, I noticed doing my research, you went to a art school, Corcoran School of Art, but then you yeah. also went to Howard. So you, you had these two very different schooling education experiences. What were the similarities and the differences between those? Because they were like right around, like in the same area. They're both in D.C., right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what was that like? In all honesty, the transfer over to HBCU came at the cost of not having any money to continue going to Corcoran. Mm. The Corcoran was so expensive even in the 80s. You know, I think the first year I didn't get any financial aid. And so that was my mother and my stepfather trying to put this money together out of their pocket, you know, to, to send me to school. And me also working after school to like support myself. You know, my, they dropped me off in DC with $200. <laughs> yeah. So I got a job like the next day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the school was expensive. It was like 10000 a semester when I was there. And this is like 88, 89, you wow. know? Yeah. And so I looked at Howard and I had a bunch of family members and like friends and cousins that were going to Howard. And I used to hang out at Howard all the time. And so, you know, when I really ran out of money, I had to make a decision. It was like, you know, are you going to go home or are you going to like figure out your life? And so, you know, I decided to transfer to Howard thinking that I could make it work. Now, the program definitely was not up to snuff in terms of what Corcoran offered as a design education and what Howard offered. But what I will commend Howard for was teaching me hustle. Mm. and endurance and fortitude and never say, <laughs> you know, die mentality. And I also had a really great professor who put me in front of an Apple computer in, in the early 90s. Her name was Dr. Lee. And she actually attended Howard. She was a um, petite Asian woman who had who had graduated from the school, and I think in the 70s or the 80s, and had been a part of that school's curriculum and community for a while. But she saw where the future was going. And so uh, probably at a time when I was getting ready to just leave school altogether, you know, she pulled me to the side and put me in front of this computer and the rest was history. Like I I never left the computer lab for those last like two and a half years of school. And I learned everything I could learn about, you know, the software. I built my portfolio and I was able to basically get an internship at Discovery Channel that led to everything else in my career that I was able to do. But it definitely taught me a lot of hustle. That was a difference. Corcoran was a very formal sort of design education. Howard was more of life education. Because mm. I'm, you know, if you think about this, when I went to Howard, think about the people I went to Howard with. I went to Howard with Sean Combs, his roommates that all went with him to Bad Boy. My old roommate used to work for him, DeAndre Maiden, who now works for, I think, Good Music. There's tons of lawyers that came out of Howard at that time that have all worked in the recording industry. Derek Angeletti came out of that Howard at that time in like 93, 94. I mean, so many people in the music business came out of Howard in the early, in the early 90s, man. It was like the place to be, you know? <laughs> I mean, fashion, think about like Carl Kanai came out, Mecca, Cross Colors, like African American College Alliance apparel. Oh, yeah. It was just like, I might not have gotten a formal design education, but <laughs> I was around so much creativity that it would have never looked the same had I had finished my education at Corcoran. Like I was around mm -hmm. 
I don't know if you remember Fresh Prince of Bel Air when he was wearing these crazy illustrated T-shirts. Yeah. I went to school with the guys who started Tribe Vibe. Really? Yeah. We wow. all of us were at Howard at the same time. Tribe Vibe, Meskine, and Nietzsche, all of that stuff came out of Howard University. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> incredible people. Man. Like in terms of music production, like Young Guru is like one of my longtime friends, Jay-Z's engineer. Like we were at homecoming together like two weeks ago. Wow. You know, like just the amount of like human energy and creativity that came out of that school in that era is nothing else like it, man. Wow. Rich Harrison, who like, you know, d- did music for Beyonce and for mm-hmm. A. Marie and dude, it's just, it's tremendous, man. I could, I could go on for Mark Pitts, who was managing uh, Usher and my man Tracy Lee, who had an album, and a couple songs. He had a song with Big on his album. I mean, dude, it's it's an amazing. I mean, Raz Baraka came out of Howard. And now he's like the like the mayor of Newark. Yeah, I mean, dude, we had a strong family at that school, man. That's literally what it felt like. Your like your family away from home, man. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's what a lot of people tend to get. I guess uh, I won't say get wrong, but what they don't necessarily understand about HBCU. So, like, I I went to an HBCU. I went to Morehouse. My mom teaches at well she taught she's retired now but she taught at an hbcu and so like when you're talking about the aaca sweatshirts and all that stuff i i gave a, a panel talk last week and i was talking about how for me growing up like going to college was always the option like it was never it was never not an option to go to college yeah. one because my mom taught for a college so it was like you going but secondly because pop culture reflected college as being like the place to be i mean a different world you have the sweatshirt you had people rocking all of this in like movies and tv and stuff and so it was like freaknik i mean i'm from alabama so freaknik just stayed over so like going to college was like we were going to college (laughs) there was never this talk about what are you going to do when you graduate high school it was like i'm going to college you you picked which college you went to you picked which frat you were going to pledge or which sorority you were going to pledge and it was just it was a way of life. It's just what it was. And it's amazing how the design and the culture affected that. Because in the same vein, when I was talking about that, there were other people on the panel that were like, yeah, it was totally the opposite for me. And I was like, I don't understand how you grew up in the 90s like I did. And like college right. was not the option. Like college right. was like, that's where the parties were. That's where you went and, and you know, because it was all the whole United Negro College Fund, the Black of the College, the Suite of the Knowledge. Like, it was just always a thing. For me, it was, at least. And I think for many people that went to my high school, too, it was the same way. Like, I think all of us pretty much went to college. And it was a small, small class, about 200 people or so. Yeah. But it was never not an option. No, I think we came up in a generation where our parents made sure, right? That Yeah. At least, you know, I'm I'm almost, I'm 47, going to be 48. But Okay. You know, at the time I went to school, they still had the trades in the school. So college was the mandate. Mm-hmm. But they also had other avenues by which you could, you could like, you know, make a living and support yourself. Yes, I mean, think about the entertainment, right? Like, we had people still try to vilify and talk bad about Cosby, but Cosby saved a lot of black lives. Deborah, Debbie Allen saved a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. And those television shows and that, that level of entertainment at that time spearheaded a lot of you know, that inbound college growth during that era. 
And so I'm sure that there's a particular reason why we have the kind of entertainment that we have on television today versus what we had back in our generation, right? That stuff is purposeful. I don't want people to think that that some of these shows that are on television right now are just by happenstance, like Real Housewives and you know Love and Hip Hop. Like that stuff is not what, to me at least, not what real life is about. <laughs> you know, all this like hyper sort of centralization on reality television, right? Where it's not even real. You know, we didn't have any of that. You know, we had television that was a lot more education based, or at least promoted educational values. Well, I think it was more grounded, if anything, because you had, I mean, certainly like if you were on BET, they had movies and Rap City and all that. So you could see that part of it. But then you had the the other side where it was like the Cosby show, the parenthood and all these other kind of shows, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So you had, there was a spectrum, whereas yeah. now I don't think there's really a spectrum. Now it's like, this is it. <laughs> these are your choices, like choose yeah. wisely. Yeah. Or, yeah, or yeah, just watch Netflix. <laughs> or just watch Netflix. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Right. right. Let's bring yeah. it back to the presence with you being in Portland, which I was there in September for XOXO Fest. Not exactly a bastion of diversity. What is the design scene like there for you? I'll be honest and transparent with you. Like, I haven't really participated a lot in the local design community here. And currently, I travel a lot between here and uh, D.C. and Baltimore. And so I would love to get sort of re-embedded in the design community here. But I think there's some great people here. Like there's Dwayne Edwards is here. Mm-hmm. He's got like, the premier school for footwear design, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, in the country right now. And so, yeah. And so. But again, like I haven't. Once I stepped away from like, you know, Nike as a corporation and an organization, I just kind of like, I started going home more. I just started focusing way more on, mm. like, I want to be around the creative kind of mindset that I'm used to, that is connected more to an ideal and a collaborative sort of notion that, I, that I'm interested in. And so I wasn't really finding that here. I'm not going to suggest that it's not here. I don't think that I was actively like looking for it. There's like, again, there's some great people here doing some great things. I just think that like I was hyper focused on like rebuilding that network of communication that I had with a lot of my artist friends and creative friends from, from back on the East coast. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like between Nike and Wyden and Kennedy, which I know that Wyden kind of feeds into Nike um, in that way, but I feel like there's probably, probably a good like central core of black creative folks there. I'm I'm strictly guessing just based off of those two things. When I came for XOXO back in September, one of the things I wanted to do was meet with the diversity and inclusion person at AIGA Portland. Her name is uh, Simon Sotelo. And her and I, we met and we had dinner and I just, you know, she's new to the role. And so we sort of talked about well, what are the the challenges that you face with like finding diversity and inclusion in Portland. She kind of just put her hands up, like look around, (laughs) like, like all of this is the issue. When she said, sometimes they would hold events for people of color and non people of color would show up just to like make a scene, which you couldn't do that in Atlanta. That would not fly. I could see in Portland how, yeah, that might be the case, but I was just like, wow, that's, that's wild. But I mean, to that effect, I just wonder kind of what 
that creative community looks like there because I did talk to black folks that were like in and around the Pacific Northwest that, you know, just happened to be at XOXO and they were just so pleased to be around other people of color. Like, Oh my God, there's another, like, you know, like doing like the color purple hand clap in the, in the parking lot when they see somebody else like, Oh my God, it's, it's, it's you and you look like me and we both do, you know, design or creative stuff or whatever. So I think there's an opportunity at least. There is, there's a ton of opportunity here. I think that, where I don't see the intersection happening. And again, there's a few brands here, right? Mm-hmm. There's Nike, there's Adidas, there's Intel, there's Columbia Sportswear. <laughs> there's uh, a lot of niche brands here as well. And it's a very, you know, makers driven sort of community and culture. But again, like the, as far as I'm concerned, the black people that are here that are actually working at a lot of these larger brands, pretty much they have their own crews of sort of, individuals that they may work with and collaborate with, but you don't see them as often. I was able to throw the rope back when I was working at Nike. I hired this young brother from DC. Uh, He was living in Brooklyn at the time. And the dude's work was incredible. And the dude's work now is incredible. His name is Darian Burks. I know Darian Burks. Well, I know of Darian Burks. Yeah, I'm going to make sure I'm in Darian because Darian is like, when I looked at Darian, I was like, I saw a better version of myself that could that could continue, you know, working at this place when I figured it would be time for me to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, I, and the dude is amazing. He's got an yeah. amazing, you know, work ethic. He's an amazing personality and amazing talent. Musician and re- too. Yes. And a really self-driven, you know, type dude. And it, and when we interviewed in New York, man, we interviewed at the uh, W Hotel Union Square. And I remember him <laughs> saying one thing in particular to me, it resonated with me so hard. I was like, yo, you're hired. Like, I, li- I literally was like, you might as well be prepared to move because <laughs> like, me to Portland, you know, because it because, again, it made me feel like he was going to bring his whole self to the job when he said that what you see is what you get, you know, and he wasn't afraid to to exude like who he was as a person and as a creative. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, yo, I rock with him. I was like, he's coming with me, <laughs> you know. And so I hired him straight away. I wish that we would have uh, hired more African-American women mm-hmm. to work in, particularly in brand design. But I didn't get an opportunity to do to, you know, to fill any of those roles while I was there. There was lots of you know African-American women that worked on the product side and on the marketing side and in retail and, and in places like that. But we're a lot harder to find in the uh, in the global brand, and the North American brand design capacity. Interesting. Yeah, uh, it's funny because you mentioned you mentioned Dwayne Edwards just a while ago from Pencil. He had a reality show on YouTube. I don't know if you knew about this. He had this reality show called. Um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name. He had a show on YouTube where basically teams put together, you know, different like shoe campaigns. Uh, I forget the name of it. I'm I'm completely blanking on it. I'm gonna look it up on YouTube while I'm talking, but. I remember that he did have a fair amount of black women that were on that show. Mm-hmm. Lace up. That's what it was called. Lace yeah. up the ultimate sneaker challenge. Yeah. And I, I actually, I'm going to have one of the women on the show in the, in the near future to talk about kind of what that experience was like. Cause I was curious to kind of see like, yeah, there were, I think there was only one black woman that was actually working on like the actual design side. The other people were doing marketing or something mm-hmm. to that effect. But I'm curious to just kind of, see what that experience was like for her and if she's continued with it. Cause I think all the people are still kind of 
working in some capacity, not necessarily for pencil, but they're still working in the industry in yeah. some way. I'm really thankful that, you know, Dwayne's been such an advocate for this, for this design community at large. I really love what he's doing. And uh, again, I haven't seen that show, but I can relate, you know, to, to, a, to like the dynamic of a group sort of looking like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And again, like in terms of product design at Nike, yes, they have, have a few African-American women that work within that organization, probably a lot more African-American males that are working within the product-focused part of the business. I think when I'm talking about design in terms of brand design and like brand marketing, that's where the disconnect happens for me. You know, that in the 13 years that I was working there, like we had never hired an African-American woman to actually work for the brand design organization. Wow. Yeah. And I was even like trying to advocate for Diane at one point because I knew she had an interest in coming out, you know, to, to work for Nike. Yeah, I just remember, man, I, that even when the realization hit me, I was like, "Yo, this is crazy." Yeah, I've been here, you know, and and to see turnover happens, to see freelancers come in on a regular basis, right, mm-hmm. and to not see, or to, and to never see like an African American woman come in even for an interview was like astonishing for me. It made me start to question, like, what, like, what else could I be doing? Yeah, act? I was gonna say, like, do you think it's something that the company is just not attracting, or are they not doing that outreach to those communities? I think it's a combination of both. I think it's retaining, attracting, and then also, once you even get a person there, right, is like, how are you then nurturing, sort of advocating for that person's career, you know, through the journey? I think that's. Yeah, there's there's a lot of dynamics that need to happen, you know, within the sort of design space here in Portland. They're definitely challenging for me. I mean, and again, I don't know everyone here. I know that there's some great, you know, women here doing some great things on the fashion side. I know of a few names on the design side that, you know, maybe working for Wyden and Kennedy or or maybe working at Adidas, but I can't put a face with a name right now. Most of the of the Women, black women that I know that are in the design fields are in L.A. or either back in D.C. and Baltimore that I know personally. Interesting. I don't know. If, I mean, maybe that could be a if you think about it, like in the future, that could just be an opportunity there because I feel like they're there. I'm thinking off the top of my head. There was a one. Oh, no, she was a copywriter, I think. No, she was a, she was a copywriter and a designer. There was this woman who worked for Widen and Kennedy. I don't think she works there anymore. But she went by the name, or she goes by the name, I should say, Momo Pixel. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, she created this video game called Hair Nah that, like, it's about people trying to touch black women's hair and you, like, swap people's hands away and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I know she left recently because she was talking about it at XOXO about how she was leaving. Or she had left Widening Kennedy and was trying to decide on, like, what her next move was. Yeah. So. There's lots of exodus happening. (laughs) Hmm right here uh, in Portland as of late. I-, I went to a party yesterday for a couple of friends of mine who had um, moved here from D.C. And they were a younger, younger couple. And the husband uh, had started a, like a software development business, I think. Yeah. And then, and then recently they've decided to move to Atlanta. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well. Yeah. This is definitely <laughs> totally blunt and transparent with you. I don't ever recommend black people moving here. <laughs> Without fully understanding, like what you're going to end up sacrificing, I always question why people want to make the move here, without understanding like what 
dynamics of this state are really like. It can definitely be a challenging environment. It could also be a really great environment, depending on like whether you're a family person with kids and a wife or a husband, and whether you're a single person, you know, just looking to enjoy life and and fly by the seat of your pants and figure things out. You know, I think there's there's two dynamics that work very differently here, depending on like who you are and um you know what you're coming here for. There's tons of opportunity here. It's just that you have to be able to accept like what the rest of this state is really like and about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's definitely again like the ratio. What is the? I think the percentage of black folks here is like less than four percent in the state or in the city. In the state. Oh wow. Okay. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah, and then you feel it. You definitely feel it. Yeah. You definitely feel it in ways that uh, you don't feel it anywhere else. So what keeps you there? The only thing that keeps me here right now is the fact that, you know, my wife has a pretty good career. She is the associate dean of uh, Lewis and Clark College in the mathematics department. Um, my wife, Naomi Cameron Murphy, I'll shout her out. And my youngest one is still in high school. We're just trying to figure out what's the, like, what's the best next move for her. You know, whether we let her finish high school here, because she's already decided where she's going to school. So we just have to figure out how to get her there. Is it Howard? No, she wants to go. To, <laughs> she wants to go to NYU, and uh, she's considering uh, FIT. Okay. We went. We went on a bunch of uh, college tours this summer. She was essentially my road dog for mm-hmm. almost a month. And so, you know, we stayed in New York for a couple of nights and visited a couple of schools. We visited Howard. She did the tour. We did Maryland and she did the tour there. And then we have a few more schools that we'll do this summer coming up. But she's pretty she's pretty bent on either NYU or FIT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like those are the two choices right now. And so that's, you know, the biggest thing that keeps us here is, you know, my son's still in school down in uh, California. Okay. So it's a, you know, a easy skip for him to, you know, fly up here to visit us when he's out of school. My oldest ended up going to art school as well. She went to Micah. Okay. Her, her name is Karima Murphy. She works in a UXI design. She's an amazing designer. Like I'm, I'm so proud of like my three kids, man, in terms of, you know, where their life's journey is, is taking them. It's pretty inspiring to feel like my wife and I are doing a, a pretty good job of trying to of trying to like, you know, send them on their life journey with the, with the tools that they need to succeed. Is your son into design too? No, he is the communicator. My son okay. is into communications. He, he is uh he, I used to call him the politician when he was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz he could talk you into anything. <laughs> like literally. Is is it almost it used to feel like he was trying to use Jedi mind tricks on people (laughs) (laughs) but he's like he's into communications and he's into he's into a lot of similar stuff like me in terms of music and fashion and stuff like that but he's definitely more so on the on the communication and political sort of spectrum you know like i can see him being in in the educational realm you know maybe following in his mom's footsteps or you know him even being a lawyer at some point nice yeah. So with your oldest daughter being a designer, how do you want to make the design community better for her? Oh, man, I just want to kick down as many doors as possible, you know, and and basically at least talk talk to her through 
certain aspects of challenges that she may have to deal with. You know, I don't want to try to tell her what to do, but I want to at least try to give her the cliff notes <laughs> or a bit of a, a guidebook on, you know, the things to avoid and, and, and maybe the things to take to actually take advantage of mm-hmm. in terms of like how your career sort of navigates and develops itself. You know, I, w- I want her to have all the lessons that I wasn't able to sort of absorb maybe when I was younger that like some of the older generations were sharing with me that I like fully absorb now. You know what I mean? What keeps you motivated and inspired these days? I don't know. man. I've, I've just always loved design. Uh, I love seeing some of the young people are doing like I just came back from D.C. Design Week. And it was amazing to like really network and meet with a lot of those young designers from that community, from like that D.C. and Baltimore area. And I just I just love everything that they're doing. I love the energy that's happening in D.C. and Baltimore with the arts community. And I'm super inspired by what's happening there, especially in that. I don't want to call it that DIY space, but even though that that's what it is, I just feel like there's a ton of opportunity for young people to sort of set the path for themselves that they feel is best, you know, versus feeling like they have to go into a particular type of career. Uh, you can have a job, but you, you can still have a, a clear passion that you can execute on, whether that be in fashion or the digital space or photography or you know anything else, you know? Like my daughter does these collaborations with um, a couple of illustrator friends that she had from college. And, you know, the stuff is incredible. And I'm, I'm just simply telling them, you need to sell this stuff. <laughs> you need to, like, build a brand, have some fun as well as make a little bit of money with, with what you're doing. What advice would you give to somebody that they're listening to this interview? They certainly are inspired by your journey and where you've been and where you're going. What advice would you give to somebody that wants to follow in your footsteps? Well, number one, you're not alone. Number two, keep going. And uh, number three, never take no for an answer. And if somebody tells you no or, you know, rejects you, just know that they'll pay for it later. (laughs) (laughs) That was my philosophy and mentality coming out of school. It was like no one can design better than me. I don't care who you are. (laughs) Um, I can do anything that you put in front of me because often I would have to self-teach myself whatever it was, you know, in terms of whatever career or position that I was attempting to get. And uh, number three, any rejection letter that I ever received from a company or an organization, I always said to myself, well, they're going to pay for it later. Mm-hmm. You didn't hire me now, but you're going to pay for it later. And, and literally, I feel like that's essentially years later what happened. <laughs> what do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? I'm still figuring parts of that out. Like I, I have a huge interest in um, this sort of makerspace right now. I'm doing a lot of investigation around the use of sort of this laser engraver that I have that I recently purchased, and I'm having a ton of fun. I I keep telling people I liken this laser etcher to the turntable of the 80s. (laughs) And so I kind of see myself as like, wow, like if I can, you know, figure out how to create something on this on this type of a machine like no one has ever done before, you know, it could lead to some real prosperity later. And right now, I'm, you know, I'm still doing a bunch of uh, a bunch of speaking gigs. I like working with the youth, so I may be doing some part time uh, teaching. And you know, I'm doing freelance and and just maybe taking a year, you know, a year and a half to just maybe reimagine 
what the next career move could be like for me. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, Jason, where can our audience find more about you and your work online? All right. Well, you can find my portfolio at jasonhusainmurphy.com. And I have a LinkedIn profile as well. I think you can just look up Jason Murphy on LinkedIn in the sort of, you know, Portland, Oregon area. And I'm not too hard to find, I don't think, from there. All right. Sounds good. Well, Jason Murphy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really just want to thank you for just sharing like your whole journey with, with everything that you've done. Like I said, I watched you speak at AIGA design conference and I think I got a different dimension from talking with you from that because sometimes what can happen is, and, and maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, when you end up working for a certain organization that has a pretty big name and you've done it for so long, people tend to think that's where your story begins. Mm-hmm. It's like you just like sprang forth from the earth and like started working at Nike <laughs> um, no. and, and not taking into account like the journey that got you there, the experiences that got you there and what keeps you going and keeps you motivated. So I'm, I'm really glad to be able to talk with you about all of this. And uh, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Man. I want to thank you again for reaching out and, you know, even considering me, you know, to, to be a part of it. You know, I'm really appreciative of that. And yeah, I mean, I think the, the one of the thing I would want young people to realize is that let the journey unfold, just let it unfold. You know, it's not the destination, like enjoy the journey. You know what I mean? And I think that's what I'm starting to realize now that even though I left the company, my career is not over because I don't work at Nike anymore. It's, it's actually now the new beginning, what I'm able to discover about myself, you know, and what I'm able to create now and what I'm able to think of, like, there's no guardrails. There's nothing inhibiting you from, you know, creating the things that you want to create. And that's, I think, some of the best stuff that I'm doing now. Yeah. And just, I love talking with the youth, man. If, they, if they, anybody wants to have a conversation, reach out to me on LinkedIn. You know, I, I'm always available. And just know that you're not alone in anything that you might be experiencing. We've all been through the same and similar circumstances and journey. You just got to keep going. Yeah. And prove and I'll prove them wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts of love are And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jason Murphy and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jason and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, then just pop on over to the homepage, it's glitch.com, and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people like you. Everyone from students that are just learning how to code, to some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies use Glitch. And they're ready to help you out if you get stuck. Visit glitch.com today. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, 
and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Mandre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two to do. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally, so it, it really like spreads the word about Revision Path. It also helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts on Apple Podcasts. And even better, I'll read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.